People often make promises they don't intend to keep. God, on the other hand, always follows through. Today on Telling the Truth, Jill Briscoe shares why you can always trust in God's faithfulness. But first, when your hope is tied to God, even the most troubled times can strengthen your faith. We want to help you find strength in times of discouragement with Stuart and Jill's five-message compilation, Hope for the Disheartened. We'll send it to you on CD or USB as our thanks for your gift to help reach more people through telling the truth. And if you're able to make your gift monthly, we'll also send you Jill's book of poetry, Barefoot in My Heart. Call us today at 1-800-889-5388 and request it. That's 1-800-889-5388. You can also give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now here's Joe with her message, He Promised Me. We're talking about the promises of God today, the promises made by a good God, a God of love. For remember, the Bible talks about hesed, which is the Hebrew word for the love of God, a love that we know perhaps too little about in this day and age. But every boy and girl, every man or woman that I meet and talk to has a need, a great big heart need, and it's the need to be loved. It's the need to be able to give love in return. That's what this series is all about. And we've been looking at the life of David because it's in his life that we see a man just like you and I, a human being who is able to understand how to receive the love of God and experience it for himself. And that makes one a complete, a completed person. God is a promise-making God. And of course, all this is wrapped up in his character. If God is not holy, if God is not good, if God is not kind, then how can we trust his promises? We have to be convinced in our own heart and mind that God's holiness and goodness and justness can allow us to rely on his word. Now, David wrote a lot of psalms. He wrote a lot of psalms about the word of God, and one specifically is a very long psalm. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 119, and in that psalm, David says this, May your unfailing love, he said, Come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And then again, just a little further on in the psalm, your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous. According to your promise to your servant, may your unfailing love be my comfort. And so here, David talks about his said the love of God, and he links it to the ability that this loving God has to make loving promises. Now, you know, we take perhaps this a little bit for granted. If you said to anybody that professed to be a Christian, do you believe that God is a God of love? What would you expect them to say to you? You would expect them to say, sure, God is good. God is love. It isn't like that all over the world. Stuart and I had the opportunity to go to many different countries and to walk into the worship centers of people that worship in a very different way than we do, that believe in a God who is very different in character than the Jewish God, the Christian's God. 
I remember going with one of our missionaries into a Buddhist temple, a Buddhist temple that is called Hell. What a dreadful name for a temple. But what they have done is they have created something that is sort of halfway between Disneyland, not to be disrespectful, and they have all sorts of moving staircases and figures that are made that as you walk past them, machines start them into operation, music comes, ghost sounds, and yet it is also a Buddhist temple. And what they've tried to do is show children and people what they have to expect after they die. And you walk into the beginning of this temple, into the door, and you see this lady and gentleman, this couple who have died, and they're walking over the bridge from life into death. And as soon as they come in there, then all these scenes begin to open up before you as you walk along down the corridors of this temple. And you see the most dreadful things. You see these people in a sort of purgatory, suffering for the things they have done in this life. You see one of the men having his tongue ripped out because obviously he said things he shouldn't have said. You see the woman pleading for mercy and not receiving it. You see one of them getting their stomach ripped out because they have been a glutton and not possessed their appetites. They have let their appetites possess them. Then, of course, you see one of them even upside down with their head in a frying pan because they have thought things that they should not think. And so you get to the end of this awful walk through this temple and you come to the Wheel of Fortune for Buddhism includes in it a lot of luck. And it just depends where the Wheel of Fortune stops what you come back into this next life for they believe in a return to this life as another person or if you haven't been that good as an animal or if you haven't been that good as an insect. And it just depends where the Wheel of Fortune, the luck wheel falls on a picture which you become. And then the last scene is you see the man walking back as a person and you don't see the woman. I presume she's an insect and she's coming back as something like that. To me, this isn't very promising. Not only isn't it very promising, it doesn't speak of a God who is a very promising God in any sense or form. What a blessing it is. I, I remember coming out of that temple thinking we have a God of love. What a message we have to give to the whole world. The God is a God of Hesed. And we can trust his promises because he is as big and as great as his promises. Years and years ago, Stuart and I lived in a little tiny cottage in England, and we served a youth ministry. And we didn't get much money, and so we didn't have any money to go on holidays. Perhaps we would go home and visit our parents. But I remember going six years straight without a real break and saying to my husband, we really need a holiday. And he said, well, I don't know how we're going to manage to have one. And one day he came in and he said, Jill, I've got some wonderful news for you. We are going to have a holiday. And I said, oh, yes, where? At mother's or your mother's? And he said, no, we're going to Spain. We're going to get on an airplane. We're going to go where the sunshine. We're going to go to a beautiful hotel. And we're going to be there for two weeks, all expenses paid. And I interrupted him and I said, don't joke. That's not funny. Because to me, he was just teasing me. I knew that he had the will to promise me these things, but he did not have the means. We did not have the means. He couldn't come through on his promise. And a promise is only as big and as great as the promiser. 
However, he kept on telling me about this holiday, and then he said to me, Norman said so. And as soon as he said those three little words, I said, you pray, I'll pack. And I went upstairs really excited, realizing that I could put on my schedule, on my calendar, a holiday in Spain, all expenses paid. For Norman was a rich businessman. He had the means and he had the ability to do that for us. And I knew why he was going to do that for us, because Norman had been converted under my husband's ministry and he wanted to do something to help us in return. He was a wonderful man. I remember when he got converted, he said to Stuart, I want to invite all the people that are in my mobile homes. He owned all the mobile home parks around the biggest lake in the English Lake District, Lake Windermere. And he wanted to let all these people know that he had come to Christ. He was totally unchurched. He didn't have a clue about what a real Christian was or the church was. But he came to faith in the Lord and he was so excited he wanted to share his faith. And so he invited all the people that lived in these mobile homes to come and hear my husband speak. And he said, I'll get them all there and I'll give them a free coffee and cream tea, a real English tea free and then I'll get a band in so they can have some music and then you can tell them what you tell me. And I remember going down to the slopes of this beautiful, beautiful part of the world that is is where we come from, is our home. And there was Norman and as good as his word, he had thousands of people there. And he had a band there. And to my horror, just before my husband got up to to speak, they played another little drink won't do me any harm. <laughs> now they did that simply because they didn't know what else to to, to do or to play. However, Stuart did his best after such an introduction, and we had a wonderful time. But Norman promised, and Norman had the ability to come through. How much bigger is God than Norman? You're listening to Jill Briscoe on Telling the Truth with a message from her series, God's Love for Us. Jill's coming right back, but before she dives back in, everyone experiences disappointment in life. And when things don't go the way we want or expect, in big or small ways, discouragement can become entrenched in our hearts and minds. But that doesn't mean we have to lose heart or stumble in our faith in life's most troubling moments. And in hope for the disheartened, Stuart and Joel Briscoe's new five-message series, you'll discover why our hope must be tied to God and reliant on His strength and timing. You'll also be encouraged as you hear Stuart and Joel point you and anyone who's feeling discouraged to the all-powerful God of hope. Hope for the Disheartened is our way to thank you for your financial support of Telling the Truth today. And through March 10th, when you make your gift monthly, We'll also send you a special bonus resource, Jill's most loved book of poetry, Barefoot in My Heart. So request your copies today when you call and give. 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388. You can also give online at tellingthetruth.org. For many, our smartphones have become our social connection. But we want to help you make a spiritual connection with the Telling the Truth mobile app. You can listen to daily programs, engage in Bible reading plans, journal, and share your thoughts and prayers on the community wall. Get the Telling the Truth app through your app store or log on to tellingthetruth.org slash mobile app. Remember, you can also give to support Telling the Truth on our mobile app. 
Now, here's more from Jill. God is big enough and great enough and powerful enough to promise us what He will. And He will only promise us what He can come through on. We can rely on God. He gives us a hope or expectation that is huge, and it is based on His unfailing love. Now, what did He promise David? Well, to read that, we need to turn in the Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you do that with me now, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me just fill you in on a little bit of the background here. David had been a shepherd boy. Samuel had come into town, if you remember. He had anointed David and said, you are the future king of Israel. Now, there was another king, King Saul, on the throne at the time. But God's spirit had been withdrawn from Saul. And from the time he was anointed by Samuel, God's spirit came upon David. A little bit different in the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on whom God sent him for a time, for a specific task. Often at the point of anointing, Kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed. Anointed for a specific task for a specific time. The New Testament, of course, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart to abide forever. He doesn't come in and go at whim. Here, God had withdrawn the Holy Spirit from Saul and he anointed David to be king. And from that moment, the power of God came on David in an incredible way. Well, David had a lot of years to wait until he became king of Israel, but eventually he became king of Israel. God gave him rest from all his enemies, and he'd had many enemies. And at that point, David says, now it's time I made a house for God. It's time I made a permanent temple. Tabernacle's fine to cart here and there and movable and all of that. But now is the time when we need to build a temple of the Lord and I'm going to do it. Nathan the prophet at first says, that sounds a great idea, David, do it. But then God speaks to Nathan at night. And he comes to Nathan and says, go and tell my servant David, and this is verse 5, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And then he goes on to say, no, your hands are full of blood. You're a man who is killed. Your son Solomon will do that. But then if you come down here a little bit, now tell my servant, verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies. Now I will make your name great, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, but you're not going to do it. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David comes and says, I want to build a house for you. And God sends Nathan the prophet to David to say, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. What does this mean? Was God going to build David a temple? No, he's talking about his family. I'm going to give your descendants something very special. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to make a promise that from generation to generation, your family is going to be blessed. And specifically because I am going to send my one and only son, great David's greatest son, into your family line. And I will give you a throne that will never, ever pass away. God is talking about eternity. God is saying to David, 
I am going to give you far more than you could ever ask or dream. I am going to promise you that there will never cease a man from your line to sit on the throne of earth and heaven forever and ever. And David is absolutely overwhelmed at this. And in verse 18, he responds, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? As if this weren't enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this the usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God but you. Who is like your people, Israel? And now, O Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant. Do as you have promised. Do as you have promised. Now, we know that God loves us. David knew that God loved him. God had invented him. In his genius, he had crafted him in his mother's womb. And God saw his spirit and saw his heart. God knew him. And David knows that God knows all about him, the good and the bad. And God also invested David. Not only did he invent him, he invested him with his Holy Spirit. And he included David in the promises of Abraham. Now, we need to turn to the New Testament to get a little glimpse of what this means. Because you and I are included in the promises God made to David, that we can be part of this kingdom of God that God is telling David about. We can be part of the kingdom where Jesus Christ, great David, greatest son, sits on the throne. We can go to heaven when we die, and we can live in this afterlife, an incredible situation, experience, the Bible tells us, where eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared, promised for those who love him. And in Ephesians, Paul is talking to people like you and me, people that aren't Jews. And he's talking about the promises that God has made, the promises to include us in all these wonderful, wonderful promises. Listen to this. In him we were also chosen, anointed, having been predestined according to the plan of him, the big plan that God has for all who will trust in this, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, says Paul, we Jews, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, you Gentiles, the Gentiles represent us that are non-Jews, in order that you Gentiles could be included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying he invented you and I, Jews and non-Jews, which takes in the whole of the world. He invested those who would. He anointed those that would with the promised Holy Spirit, the one who is the seal. 
He is the one who includes us. If we have the Holy Spirit, we are included, we are invested. And all the promises of God can be claimed. We can claim those promises. It's a lovely picture here. He says the Holy Spirit's like a deposit, like a promise, like a seal. You could say in our language, like an engagement ring. And when we realize that we are sinners and that we need to ask God's mercy and God's loving grace and be forgiven, he forgives us and he invests us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us his engagement ring. And he says, now there it is in your life. There is my Holy Spirit. It is a deposit, a promise of the guaranteed inheritance when one day there will be a marriage in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you will be enjoying all that I am preparing for you in that wonderful, wonderful experience after we die. That's Jill Briscoe on today's Telling the Truth. She's coming right back to answer an important question from today's message. But before she does, the support of friends like you helps transform the world through sound biblical resources and teaching like you're hearing today. Because when people understand and apply God's word, they experience life in all its fullness. That's why we'll say thanks for your gift to help keep this teaching ministry going strong with Stuart and Jill's new five-message series, Hope for the Disheartened. In this encouraging series, you'll discover that when your hope is firmly tied to God, your faith can actually grow stronger in troubled times. And if you're able to make your gift monthly, we'll also send you a bonus resource, Jill's beautiful book of poetry, Barefoot in My Heart. So call today to request Hope for the Disheartened and Barefoot in My Heart as thanks for your first monthly gift to help transform hearts, families, and communities all around the world. Or you can request Hope for the Disheartened as thanks for your one-time gift. Just call 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388. Or you can give online at tellingthetruth.org. Now here's Jill to answer a question about today's message. Jill, when we open the door of our hearts to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside a believer. How does the Holy Spirit change us while we're here on this earth? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit dwells inside a believer? Dwells is an old-fashioned word. It's in our Bible, actually, in some translations. What it means is the word actually in the Greek means settle down and feel at home. Kick your shoes off, make yourself at home. It's inviting a guest to come into your home and providing a pair of slippers. And uh, they come in and make yourself at home. The house is yours. Take, take what you want to do. I love the picture, actually, of inviting a guest to come into your home or your house, if you wish, and I remember doing some children's talks once and I drew a house and I explained Jesus is knocking at the door and he wants to come in and I used that picture of him wanting to enter our lives. And then I talked about somebody coming into our house. We don't let them leave their coat on and their heavy shoes and say, well, sit there for a minute. We take their coat. Let me take your coat. 
Just just make yourself at home. We have to do that with the Spirit of God. Give him the run of the house. Don't say, now this is where you sit, in the hallway. Many people do that. They just invite him into the hallway of their lives, and that's where he lives for the rest of his life. He can't do much there. You invite him into the living room where there are guests and the family comes and meets Jesus. And you invite him into the workroom, the computer room. That makes a difference to what you watch and what you do, don't you think, if you invite Jesus into the computer room? And then you invite him into the nursery and you invite him into the children's lives. And you say, take the house. Just make yourself at home. Be Lord of the house as if it's yours because it is. I've just signed this house over to you, Jesus. Now it's your house, and I live here with you. Now, those are very simple pictures that click with children. I've used them many times, but they should click with us as well. And so as we invite Jesus into our hearts, into our lives with a simple prayer, come in, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, children's song, he does. He's standing there, and he wants to come in. And my question to you is, how much of the house did you give him? Thanks, Jill. Just a reminder, before we close today's broadcast, when you call and give to help more people experience life, we'll send you the Briscoe's five-message series, Hope for the Disheartened, as our thanks. And if you make your gift monthly, we'll also include Jill's most loved book of poetry, Barefoot in My Heart. Request your resources today when you call 1-800-889-5388. That's 1-800-889-5388 or give online when you visit tellingthetruth.org. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you'll tune in again as the Briscoes share more powerful truth from God's Word. Experience life next time on Telling the Truth.